This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive. All right, Chris, for those who don't know you, which is starting to become a smaller and smaller number now that your Twitter's taken off, uh, who are you and what led you to your current investment philosophy? Sure. So I think at a high level, I'm very passionate, especially about investing, uh, very highly structured. I think, as you could tell, a very disciplined and just process-oriented person. Um, you know, I try to think about what's my why, you know, why do I do things? And it all comes back to wanting to constantly be learning. And I think that's why I fit in so perfectly with the public markets, because you can have a 50 year career and you'll still be learning every day. And that's something that is just so attractive to me. And it's part of why I'm so competitive, right? You know, I, I grew up playing baseball. Uh, I was going to play baseball in college at Miami, and that's how I developed this really competitive fire. And so between the competition, the constant learning, the ability to solve complex problems, uh, it's just really drawn me into the market. And so, you know, I grew up outside of Boston, Massachusetts. I have a twin sister, a little sister, and ended up going to UM, like I said, to play baseball. And so I wanted to be a sports agent, right? Like perfect place to do yep. that. Yep. Uh, you know, Drew Rosenhaus went to Miami, you know, right. one of the best agents in the world. Uh, but after my freshman year, I had an internship where I got exposed to stock market and it was just love at first sight. So I switched my major to finance and economics, uh, went through the process there. And then, you know, I did the banking and, you know, typical route into private equity for about four years uh, up until, you know, this April. And, you know, in terms of my current uh, or in terms of the, my current philosophy, right, it started out just I think with anyone else who studies finance and econ in school, it's like very value-based, right? Like this is Warren Buffett. This is Seth Klarman. You know, you want to buy stocks that are valued less than they are intrinsically. And, you know, I just, I appreciated that framework, but over time I started learning more and more about some other people that were very successful investors in their own right. And they'll develop their own frameworks that I really align with specifically, you know, Bill O'Neill and Phil Fisher, right? Um, you know, the canceling methodology, which I've really adopted. Uh, it just really aligns with me because going back to learning all the time, it's all about finding the new technologies, the innovation behind what's going on in the world. And that's what I love. So that's how I kind of came from this kid who just wanted to play baseball and, you know, had these dreams of being an MLB player, like a lot of us, I think to, you know, being somewhat of a growth focused investor. And that's where I am today. Got it. I love it. Now, in the outline that I sent to you, you came back and it was, I mean, I could honestly turn your notes into an essay, uh, which, you know, hey, I might, I might, <laughs> I might do it. <laughs> you, you said that you had three elbow surgeries, which, yes. you know, was almost a catalyst for you to switch your focus uh, to academics. How hard was that though? As someone who, you know, I've never, I've never had I guess, I guess the way I'll put it is like, I, I probably never had the opportunity to play at a higher level like you had, but still seriously competitive in, in sports, uh, tennis for me. What was that like mentally? And did you learn any lessons about that 
in the in the in the frame of like drawdowns um just like just like an actual you know life drawdown at that point with three elbow surgeries yeah so i think about it this way and just like everyone else we all go through our own you know hardships in life right and i've experienced not only through the elbow surgeries but certain jobs where you know it it's not working out the way that you thought it was. And so in that moment, so in those moments over, I think it was like nine months where I had the three surgeries, you know, it seems like everything is going against you and you're really just down in the dumps. But then you look back on it in five, 10 years and you realize that those moments and those inflection points really kind of frame and set up future success. So I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for those elbow surgeries, right? I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for certain jobs, which I really did not enjoy in the moment. So I think that a really important lesson one is to realize that everything happens for a reason. It's so much easier said than done, especially in the moment. Uh, but that's something I constantly try to keep in mind. And when it comes to drawdowns, once again, it's, you know, things don't work out right all the time like life is not perfect right and i think in today's day and age where you know the typical millennial uh stereotype is that we all think that we should get everything that we want right yeah and that specific uh experience if we want to talk about it definitely <laughs> opened my eyes to the fact that life is just not fair so you know you just can't take drawdowns personally they happen right and so the key is, and I know we'll get into this, if you've done your homework and you have true conviction in a name and you're a long-term investor, then a drawdown, yes, it's, it's psychologically difficult, but you have to realize that without that drawdown, which really could be helpful for the stock, right? Just it could be consolidating at that level. It could work out better in the long run. So it's just something to keep in mind. But yeah, you know, at the time it was hard for me. I was fortunate to have the uh, ex-Red Sox doctor who did Kurt Schilling's ankle in the 04 playoffs. Wow. He's the one that no did way. my surgeries. Yeah, you know, Bill Miller. Uh, so, you know, I was very fortunate from that perspective. But like I said, you know, life doesn't work out the way that you think it will all the time. So I'm here today because of it. I've been watching uh, today, this afternoon, actually, before, before the podcast, I watched, started watching Moneyball for the first time in my life, which is kind of crazy, right? Because that movie has been out for so long and I'm a huge, huge baseball fan and I've never watched it until really just, yeah, just an hour ago. I'm about halfway through and it's kind of funny. I didn't know that you, you know, were playing college baseball and just all these, all these analogies from Moneyball that relate to value investing. And, yeah. you know, that relate to this idea that you can find these undervalued companies and, you know, other teams are paying them fractions of what they're intrinsically worth. And I just sat there and I was like, oh my gosh, like this is value. <laughs> and so, you know, one of the things I was in, that I was interested in talking to you about is this change in philosophy over time from let's call it the standard value, quote unquote, because I think both of us agree. Um, and maybe you can talk to this a little bit more that all investing is value investing. And right. so I want to get your thoughts on, you know, how that philosophy has changed from traditional, let's call it, you know, the railroads trading at half book to these really interesting good RX uh, unity software type businesses that have really hyper growth in long runways. Sure. So you're right. You know, we share this very similar framework where, you know, the distinction between value and growth, I think is a distinction without a difference. Really at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is find stocks 
that are currently valued by the market less than what we think they are worth, right? So you can think about it if you want in the traditional sense of value versus growth, where value, the intrinsic value is literally less or more rather than what the market currently values it at. But on the other hand, what a growth stock is, is it's a stock where it has so much more potential and is growing so much faster than the market can currently appreciate that the price that you're buying it at is really a discount to its true value at the end of the day. And so actually what I'm trying to work on and is what I want to develop before I publish my newsletter on Unity is this a real options pricing framework, which Michael Mobison wrote about uh, maybe about six years ago, where what you're really doing is trying to understand what are the different options that a company has and how could that play into their value. And it just goes back to a typical Black Shoals type of model, but it's thinking about the optionality about companies have. So yeah, you know, I did start off as a traditional value. I have a very close friend of mine who's going to be a future business partner, who's a portfolio manager at O'Neill's family office. And that's how I got introduced to the Canceling methodology. And right. after doing my own research, you know, reading how to make money in stocks and doing a lot more homework, not only Bill, but like I said, Phil Fisher and other prominent growth investors, I realized that there are many ways to skin a cat because listen, you know, you can be a traditional value guy and yes, over the past 10 years, have you struggled? Of course, mm -hmm. but you can still make money that way. But for me, the alignment with this newer technology and innovation was much more appropriate from the growth, the typical growth perspective. So, you know, I do think that the, that the growth side of things, if you will, is, is definitely empirically, it's worked over time, right? If you look at stocks that have grown EPS over the you know, prior five years and three years greater than 30%, those have usually been the big winners in the market. Right. And you do wanna see as well, you know, the same revenue growth because you can grow EPS by just cutting expenses, right? But then at the end of the day, you can't grow because you need expenses to then yeah. grow your top line. Yep. So you know, there are many things that go into it, but I just over time after doing a lot of homework and realizing who I am and what I enjoy doing, that this more growth type of investing was more aligned with my own personality, which I think is a good lesson for anybody. You should develop a process and a framework and a philosophy that's aligned with your personality, not just what other people do and are successful with. Yeah, no, that's very important. And at the end of the day, you're trying to find the fewest amount of variables needed to see a thesis through. And if you want to take like a macro perspective in the sense of, you know, okay, what drives all stocks, you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's high sales growth and it's high earnings growth exactly. over time. Um, you know, in, in the short term, you can have this mean reversion effect, like you said, where it's cutting costs, you know, some easy things to do, but there's also other ways that you can manipulate earnings per share in the short term too. Um, one of the areas that when you talk about finding a strategy that fits your personality in as it relates to the canceling method, you and I are in agreement on the benefits of technical analysis. And I know that we're probably going to lose some, you know, hardcore value guys whenever you bring up technicals, right? It's kind of like this witchcraft uh, <laughs> voodoo stuff that Carol Baskin's practices on, 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 on Tiger King. But talk to us about why that's important to you, because even if some people don't use technicals in their own process, it's used by enough people where it's this self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Where if you understand why people use it, you can see the patterns yourself, even if you don't believe in them, if that makes sense. Right. 
you know, it comes back to almost like reflexivity, right? Um, yeah. And a self-fulfilling prophecy, like you said, it's, yeah. if everyone else is using it, then it's, it's almost going to work, right? And that's almost why it's, I've been, you know, thinking more and more about and talking with more people about the typical technical analysis that I use for buying common stocks, which is looking for bases and buying on breakouts, which is really what Bill focuses on in his book and what Investors Business Daily really focuses on. You know, the concern that I have is it potentially becoming an overcrowded trade. But what I do, and, you know, I think we'll get more into my process and framework, is the technical side only comes in when it comes to when to buy. The stocks that I identify, you know, that I want to buy is all based off of fundamental analysis, not just you know, the numbers, but the story and really what matters, what truly matters about the company. And, you know, you said something that really resonates with me. And I think with, if you were an analyst, right, and you're pitching to a PM, all the PM wants to know is the one or two things that's driving a stock and you know what is actually right what you believe why the market's wrong how much they're going to make off it etc so it's almost like occam's razor right you want to simplify everything as much as possible because the more factors that you throw into your thesis the more things that have to go right and the lower the probability is that you will be right so back to technical analysis you know it's just empirically proven to work over time where you can have, and it comes back to part of my framework, it's all about probabilities for me. So yeah. if over the past, historically, these certain technical patterns of bases or consolidation periods and breakouts from that, yeah. if the most part of the time the stock has then gone up from there, then that's gonna be what I wanna do. Now, I am a longer term investor, I try to be, right? I wanna buy stocks yeah. for a longer period of time. And so then you would ask, well, then why does it matter? You know, why wouldn't you just buy right away if you have full confidence in the company and you That's have- That's a great really Yeah, it's like the and perfect so my, argument to technical analysis. Sorry to cut you off. No, of course. And, and it's a great question. And so for me, it comes down to this, right? It's, and I think that Charlie Munger uh, argues for this and a lot of the, the best investors of all time will say- Listen, the key, and Buffett says this actually, you know, rule number one of investing is don't lose money, right? And then rule number two is, you know, remember rule number one. one. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. and I, I fundamentally agree with that. And when you talk about risk, risk is not standard deviation. It's not variance. It's not whatever they teach us in school. Risk is permanent loss of capital. Yeah. So the key to having good portfolio returns, or at least stable returns over time, comes down to minimizing your left tail, right? Minimizing right. your losses. So part right. of my framework is I have a minimum loss rule, which I'll somewhat fluctuate based off of either the stock or market conditions. Yeah. And that is, you know, I don't want to lose, let's say 5%. I don't want to lose more than 5% on a name. So that's why the technical side matters so much for my entry, because I don't want to be trading in and out. I don't want to get whipsawed around. So if right. there's a high probability, the stock breaks out of a base and it will keep going higher, that will then allow me to have less turnover in my portfolio and yep. it will allow me to not have that risk of it just pulling back and breaking that 5% line. Right. Now, when you say 5%, is that 
five percent of your capital like per per trade like where you put on a like let's let's use unity for example and just just for disclosure i do own unity i don't know if you own unity at this point but i bought it this morning just just a little bit so when you say you know i don't want to lose five percent is it you put a notional five percent capital five percent of your portfolio in unity or is it like a five percent stop loss from the price you bought and then it's a fraction of that position that you actually then lose the latter so it's okay. 5% from where I bought it. So okay. I can, I can get into kind of my portfolio management strategy. If you oh, want. we will. Oh yeah, we will. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> so it's 5% from where I bought it. Okay. And so what I'll do is, so it's happened to me before and I, I'm still learning a lot on the portfolio management side. And I think it's important for, you know, the viewers, but also myself to realize too, is that I'm still really new to this game, right? You can be a PM for, five, seven, 10 years and still be learning a lot about yeah. how to really tr- trade around a position, right? Because I think to be successful in the markets, you need to be a great analyst, you need to be a great PM, you need to be a great trader. Because once you're in a name, it doesn't mean that you just you know hold that number of shares and that's it. Usually a lot of the time, these guys are managing around that position, right? So when I get into a name, say Unity's at $100, let's make it easy, right? Yeah. Say it falls down past 95. I will get out of the name at that point, but I know that I have high conviction in the name and I, yeah. I know it's going to go higher and I, I truly want to own it. Right. So if it comes back to 95, I'll buy back in, but with a little more volume. So that psychologically I'm fully committed to it. Got so it. this is something that I really messed up earlier on in my portfolio management career. Mm. Uh, CrowdStrike for instance, right? Like I, I got stopped out of CrowdStrike at one point and I didn't get back in. And because I just didn't fully understand and wasn't comfortable enough with my own portfolio management skills. So it's something right. I'm constantly trying to work on. But that's really the 5% rule. Let's just, you know, call it there uh, that I try to use. Yeah. And it's, I don't know if you've read, um, you probably have the Market Wizards books, Jack Schwager. Yeah. So I, I believe it was Larry Height, the chapter on Larry Height. And okay. something something that you can learn from, because, you know, at MacroOps, it's, it's a melting pot of traders, like all the way from intraday on five minute charts to long-term buy and hold compounder type guys. Right. And um, one of the things that struck me when reading Larry Heights chapter was that he said, every trade is a 1% risk trade. That's how I view it. It's a 1%. Yep. I don't care if it's gold futures, bond futures, or Facebook, it's a 1% trade to me. And I yep. think, I think as an, as investors, it hits the nail on that head where like, if you, if you buy a stock and you get burned, there is that psychological effect of like, ah, I don't know if I want to re-enter cause I'm going to get burned again. But for a guy like Larry Hyder, for these traders that understand this idea of portfolio and risk management to them, it's just 1%. So they can play that game literally a right. hundred times in a row. And then, you know, if you, if, if you lose a hundred times in a row, that's not the risk management, that's your strategy that's failing. Yeah, right. But, but, but it's just the idea of like, it's just 1%. It's just 1%. Yep. And even if you put on a 5% position and Burry, Burry had the same strategy, he would buy off the lows. And then he said, look, if it cut new lows, I would get out and I can always wait for another opportunity. Yep. So, um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm obviously biased. So for those listening, take this with a grain of salt because the other argument is, well, if you love the business, you should be happy that it's going down because I can sit here and I can talk to guys like Cliff Sosen who 
will literally rejoice as long as the fundamentals stay intact. He will rejoice if the stock goes down every single day because you're, because then the future becomes discounted. So it's just, it's just, it's just this crazy, you know, concoction of different ideas that I'm also trying to, um, you know, trying, trying to solidify. Isn't that the beauty of it though? You know, there's so many, like I said, there's so many different ways to skin a cat and people make different strategies work. And once again, it's, it's like, what, what can your stomach handle? You know, what, what are you, what are you more inclined to be able to manage? And so, you know, for me, and I think with a lot of people, you know, we're, we're risk averse, you know, classic prospect theory with, um, you know, Daniel Kahneman, I don't like my stocks going down and that, that stuff hurts, you know? (laughs) So I know that psychologically for me, it's easier when they're going up. So I just try to put the odds in my favor. And I think that, you know, and Annie Duke wrote the book Thinking in Bets, right? And I think that's a really appropriate way that I try to think about my own life and decisions, but also investing in general. It's, you know, I want the odds to be in my favor. And, you know, that kind of gets into a much broader discussion about uh, where discretionary management is going and, you know, the fact that we have these quants that are, you know, software is even the world, well, so are quants, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think for me, I'm trying the best that I can to put the odds in my favor, but of course it's difficult. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's one thing, one last thing I'll say about this is for those that do try to incorporate that 1% rule for the first time, one of the great benefits of that is you can really get a large position doing that because you can, you know, for instance, your 5% stop loss, which to be honest, that's pretty small in terms of, you know, volatility. Like that's, I I think, I think O'Neill recommends like 8% or something, seven. Yeah. And so, and so 5% is small. So for those, you know, what that allows you to do though, is take these big positions, 20, 30% of your portfolio with only a 1% risk. Um, So, you know, if, if, if people are on the fence about that, that is one of the benefits where if you've got a high conviction name and you're scared to bet big, you can always do that. Always bet big first and then to have that 1% loss um, and just, and just, and just kind of go from there. Yeah. You know, and I, if we do want to talk more about my portfolio management strategy later, great. But as an example, right? Like you were saying, I can take a 20% position in a name and my strategy, I, you know, I try to pyramid into names where I'll take, if I've already done the research of 50% of what I want my total size to be, I'll take that right off the bat. So if it's a 20% position I want at the end of the day, I'll put 10% of my capital in, you know, day one, right? If it goes down to, if it goes down by 5%, the impact on my portfolio is only 0.5%, right? So like you said, I can go down 10% if I want, and that'd be the 1% loss rule, right? So I'm still maintaining my capital. Yep. Talk to us now. We actually kind of deconstructed your five rules, which is something I wanted to touch on in your September portfolio review. So um, we've discussed the maximum loss rule of 5%. Uh, We've discussed the utilization of fundamentals to buy and then technicals to, you know, or fundamentals to find the stocks to buy and then technicals for when to buy. And then we've got three more here that I want to, that I want to talk about. So first off, let's discuss slugging percentage as being more important than batting average. And I want to lead that with an idea from Charlie Munger, where he says, you know, basically the concentration is what matters. And Richard Chu, I was just looking at this before the podcast. He had a great Twitter thread. I think you commented on that. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, you know, that, that, that tweet thread might be more fresh in your mind. So if you want to 
you know, just kind of review what he was talking about in terms of concentration, because I think it leads in perfectly to this discussion. Sure. So, you know, Richard's point was that if you look at, so the common knowledge, right, is that common equities outperform bonds, you know, other sort of asset classes over time, which is true. But what Richard does very brilliantly is he deconstructs that and he says, okay, well, where do the returns really come from? And, and the reality is, is that the majority of the wealth creation or value creation in the market over time has come from only a handful of stocks. So if you don't own that handful of stocks and you're not owning ETFs, if you're just a, you know, idiosyncratic stock picker, then you're going to be missing out on those returns. And so I think that then lends to the importance of not only stock selection, but also position sizing, right? So, you know, if I own Apple, right, if I owned Apple back three years ago, per se, and it was only 10% of my portfolio, then I'll have a nice return. But if it was 50% of my portfolio, then I'm sitting really pretty. So that's a huge difference in terms of how to think about position sizing and stock selection. So when it comes down to slugging percentage and batting averages, you know, like, like I just mentioned, you know, quants are eating the world. We're not going to be right that often. So knowing that and knowing that I'll probably not be right all the time, then how can I get the odds in my favor? And that's by making sure that when I am right, I am sized appropriately. So it, let's say that I only bat 300, right? I'm going to the hall of fame for baseball. Right. Yeah. But if I'm batting 300, and I'm putting an 80% weight on those names and my slugging percentage is going to be whatever the math turns out to be, what, 560, whatever it may be, right? So that's why it matters more. You know, if you let your winners run and you're cutting the left tail off and you're only losing 5% on those losing trades, yeah. then you're going to end up at the end of the day to have a Kager on your portfolio a lot higher than someone that's putting, say, 5% into 20 different names and you're just basically running a correlation of zero, right? Like you're just, right. just they're doing whatever they want to do. Yeah. So the way that I think about it is this, you know, they've done all these studies where I think it's after eight stocks, like 95% of the variability in a portfolio has been already arbed out. Yeah. So what's really, what are you gaining by adding much more than that? Right. You're, so that's you're gaining, awesome. you're gaining, uh, what is it? You're gaining, n not losing your job as a PM. <laughs> that's the sad part. Oh, the principal agent problems. I yep. love that. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I think that's one side of it for me. It's definitely the importance of, you know, how can you get a high growth rate on your portfolio? But then, you know, and I, I've posted about this too. You know, I truly think of myself as an investor and back in my private equity days, you know, I understood when we were analyzing a company, we understood every single piece about that company, right. everything left no stone unturned. And that allowed us to be true owners of the business. Yep. And if you think about yourself as an investor in the public markets, then you would think that you'd want to be able to do the same thing. If you're an owner, you want to understand every part of the business. And so if you own 25, 30, 40, 50 stocks, there's no possible way. There's just not enough time that nope. you can truly understand the businesses the way that you could if you only had eight to 12 names, let's say, in your portfolio. So that's another reason why 
I keep my bets concentrated in a smaller portfolio because that allows me to truly understand the companies I'm investing in rather than just, you know, hoping that I just, because once you get more than eight to 12 names, right, you're just really getting beta. That's all you're getting in the portfolio. Exactly. So you'll track the market returns. And that's not why I'm, you know, playing this game. I'm doing it to earn alpha. And I right. think you will only do that if you're concentrating your bets and truly understanding the companies you're investing in. So do you have a set guideline for the maximum amount that you'll put in to any single name? Yeah. So, you know, the rule there, it's really like 25% Okay, uh, is, is what I'd be comfortable with. And, you know, I, I threw out the 20% figure before, and that's a good way to think about it, right? It's, you know, what is my maximum loss position? Uh, what, what will I allow myself? Mm-hmm. And then you can kind of back into what that max position size should be. And I think that 25% is a pretty healthy bet. You know, some, some people, and I haven't done it before, so I don't know how I would, you know, psychologically react to having a 40% position, but you know, there are some guys, I think, I think Richard actually has 40% in Lavongo and Teladoc, which he can do because he has such high conviction on those names and he knows them inside and out. Yeah. I just, I know what my strategy is. I know what my process is. And I don't think that I should deviate from that because that's when you kind of start getting into trouble. So I think, yeah, 25, 20% is a good rule of thumb for me. Yeah. It's uh you mentioned, you mentioned Richard and I've, I've, I've mentioned him as well. I'm getting him on the podcast, which I'm super, super amazing. Yeah. Super, super stoked about. Um, but also I was listening to a Bill girl, a Bill Gurley podcast. I think it was VC 20. Um, gosh, I forget who runs that podcast name, but a anyway, fantastic podcast. And he was saying just, just in terms of portfolios and betting big, when you think you have an edge and kind of having these concentrated bets and you saying, look, the most you can lose if you take on an investment, if you bet an investment, the most you can lose is what you invested in. If right. you if you don't invest, the most you can lose is infinite because the right. stock could go up infinitely. And right. so it, it's 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 this idea. And again, it goes back to holding your winners and cutting your losers. Where if you if you're if you're saving both your actual capital and mental capital by cutting your losers quickly, you increase the probability that you'll find that idea. And then you'll increase the chances that you'll actually invest in that idea that could be a fund maker for you. Right. And, and it's all about opportunity cost, right? And, yes. And that is one of the traditional finance, you know, theories that actually that is worthwhile that you learn in school. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and that's, and that's, you know, once again, I'm kind of telling you all of my, you know, frameworks for portfolio management, but that's kind of the lens that I view my portfolio in. I try to take a clean slate when I look at my portfolio and say, let's imagine I don't own anything right now and I have all of my capital to work with. What are the names that I want to own? What are my top eight to 12 names that I want to own? And then from there, it's like, okay, well then what, what names are actually in an appropriate technical buy territory versus which ones do I own? I kind of work through that type of thought process. And I think that it just really relates to the opportunity cost where I'm just thinking about what do I think is going to be the biggest winners? And, and I don't want to miss out on those. So, you know, and Bill Gurley is just brilliant. I I can't get enough of his stuff. One day, one day I will get him on the podcast. (laughs) I love that. I want to shift now to one of the other rules that you've got, and I'm just going to read it verbatim. It says never stay in a position if the spread between your unrealized gains and maximum loss is less than the IV from a catalyst event. So when I first read this, my feeble brain was like, 
what is this? This doesn't make sense. I've never heard of this before. So what if, if I'm thinking that, you know, then I know other people are definitely going to have this question. Um, So what do you mean by that? And how did that come into, um, you know, your process and your rules? So it goes back to the maximum loss rule and wanting to minimize my left tail. So, you know, I think what we can do is maybe walk through the example of when it really hit me that I needed to implement this rule. And, you know, it's really because of my buddy, Jason Thompson, who I mentioned is the PM at O'Neill. He helped me understand this rule a lot better. And this was after the Q2 earnings where Datadog and Alteryx both report on the same day. And for people that don't remember, uh, they both tanked about 20% upon uh, their earnings release. So what happened was I was up at probably a couple hundred basis points on both names. But when you looked at the implied volatility, which is, you know, it can be calculated, let's just say on an options chain that you can look at. Uh, it'll tell you the dollar move that the stock is expected to go through to that point in time. And what you can do is just take that dollar move and divide it by your stock price. And that's the percentage move that it could go through, right? So Datadog and Alteryx both had like a 10% or 15% implied volatility based off of their earnings date. And I only had, I think it was a two or 3% gain on the names. And I was excited because I was very bullish on Datadog and Alteryx at the time. And upon, upon the earnings release after hours, they both tanked, you know, 20, 25%. And my portfolio was upside down. And, you know, I've luckily recovered and more since then. But the rule there was that if I'm in a name, and even if I have the most conviction in the world, and I don't have enough of a buffer between my max loss rule, let's say 5%, and my unrealized gain or loss. So let's say it was 3% on those names. So I had 8% spread. And the implied volatility was 15%. If implied volatility was even 9%, I shouldn't be in the name because then I'll be violating my rule of the max loss. Hmm. Now, what can happen is it can go up after earnings and I can get back in. That's fine but I don't want to be losing capital, right? That's the true risk to me. So that's why I implemented that rule. Does that make sense in terms of how I explained it? Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does. And it's, 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 it's actually funny. You bring up this idea of investing and, and, and owning businesses during the earnings season. I know we're coming up on another earnings season, but it's always, it's always interesting when I'm doing work on a name or I'm looking to add to a name. So for instance, Carlytics is a perfect example of this. Uh, We own, we own Carlytics at Macrops. I own it. And it's got earnings coming up. And so we've been buying little bits and pieces here into earnings. And it's always one of those things where it's like, do I wait? Do I not? Because on one hand, earnings could come in and the report's bad. And for whatever reason, the stock tanks. And if the long-term drivers are still there, all right, cool. You know, if it's still within our risk parameters, we can buy more. Right. But if we don't buy and the stock takes off, then you know, it's like, ah, you know, you just, you just, you just kick yourself. Um, so I, I really like that idea. And it's something that I might, uh, I might copy from you. Yeah. No, of course. And, you know, I think that it's, it's such a difficult balance, right? Like, like we talked about, we like to be long-term investors. And I, I think what's important to realize is that there are certain things that sound great in theory, but in practice, you need to kind of live in reality, right? So it's not about playing the game that you want, which would be holding the stock forever and a day, but it's whole, it's playing a game that you're, that you're in, 
and it's, it's playing the hand that you're dealt. And so for me, what I try to do with my PA is manage it as if I was managing money, because one day my goal is to be a PM and be running my own hedge fund. Yep. And so the best way to do that is to get practice you know, <laughs> with my own capital. And, and now listen, I have my own 401k and, you know, a different stock portfolio, which truly is more of a long-term set it and forget it that I don't play around with. The capital that I'm talking about is truly discretionary that I'm, yeah. that I'm okay losing. And I think that everyone should kind of keep that in mind because everyone should do the same thing because at the end of the day, your savings, your 401k, like that is going to hold you through retirement. I'm not a wealth manager, but that's kind of basic personal finance stuff. Right? This is not financial advice, just a little quick exactly. disclaimer. <laughs> exactly. But for me, that's, that's how I think about it. So when I think about this minimum loss rule, it's just about like if I was managing a fund and managing, you know, capital, that if... I want to have perfect alignment with my LPs. They need to realize that I'm going to be looking out for their best interests all the time, which is preserving their capital. And that's why I think the rule makes a lot of sense. Right. Now I want to pivot to two discussions. I want to get into the deep dive on CrowdStrike, which as of your portfolio review on September was your biggest position. You can tell us if it still is or not. But the way, the way I want to frame this deep dive is going back to your talk on private equity and how you spent, I think it was what, four years in private equity. You said in that time, you got to learn everything about a business. And one of the questions that I always struggle with is this idea of, and Bezos, Bezos talks about this all the time too, where he says, you know, those that make decisions when they have all the information are never going to make the decisions. And I kind of put that in juxtaposed to this idea of trying to know all I can about an investment before I invest. And so the long-winded way of me asking this is, do you experience any you know, law of diminishing returns as you do this intense, deep research into public equities? And how have you managed that? Oh, of course. And we went through the same issues in private equity as well, right? It's such a difficult balance. And it's part of what I'm still trying to work on when it comes to my research process is, is what is that inflection point you know when do you yep. start having diminishing marginal returns and you know i try to think of pareto's principle right you know the 80 20 rule and when you approach investing with like i mentioned really trying to understand the one or two things that truly matter you know what what's the heart of the matter what are the critical factors i think that allows you to be more focused and more efficient with your time i have a long ways to go because like you like i'm just still i'm always digging I'm trying to dig more and more and more. And it's definitely something difficult that I've encountered in the past, you know, since Q3, when I really started developing uh, these reports mm -hmm. and publishing them was, yeah. you know, when to stop. And, and I think that's, it's definitely something that may, I didn't appreciate before because there's such a wealth of information out there. You really could just keep going. Yeah. So what I try to do, like I said, is just truly understand what matters and make sure that I understand everything going on around that. Now, the difficult thing is that not only am I trying to learn about the companies themselves, but a lot of the time it's my first time understanding the technology or the industry right. they're in. Right. So I'm going down this dual track learning curve where yeah. I'm trying to figure out, okay, when do I know enough about the industry? And then when do I know enough about the company? Right. And a lot of the time I never feel that I truly do. And so, you know, that's something that I think everyone should be aware of, right? You can have specialists, which, you know, is a classic hedgehog example, or you can have your foxes, which just know a lot about a lot of different things. And I try to be more on the fox side, mm -hmm. having a lot of mental models that allow me to 
apply different learnings that I have in certain industries and companies to others. And so network effects is a good example, right? It's a mental model and it's a framework, I think, for companies that a lot of people can relate to. And that's what really allowed me to grasp the CrowdStrike thesis. It was hmm. the whole uh, concept of network effects with its business model, which we can dive into. Yep. But once I really understood that and what the real value was, that then allowed me to have more comfort and kind of moving on. And really at the end of the day, what do you need to figure out for a company? It's why is this company making money and why will it continue to? And how do you know that it's going to be able to stave off competitors and maintain profits over the long term, which you could think about as a sustained competitive advantage. Once you have those answers and you're, and you think about everything else. And another thing is inversion. Think about how all the, what can go wrong with an investment. Once you have those questions answered, I think you're in a good spot to try to move on. And if anyone's familiar with my newsletter, I kind of go through this process where once I have these answers kind of checked off, then I'm feeling like I'm more comfortable to move on from there. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's getting back to this idea of asking the fewest amount of questions and getting the biggest bang for your buck. It's like, how does this company make money? And then will this company make more money five years from now? And then how much money will they make? How much more money will they make? five years from now. And it's interesting that you brought up this idea of generalist versus specialist because something that I've been struggling with personally, and it's not necessarily imposter syndrome. I think that's the wrong connotation, but it's almost like the cousin of it where I have to be comfortable understanding that I'm probably never going to be the smartest person in any one area, which is humbling in one sense. And it's kind of easy to digest for me personally. It's like, oh, sweet. I'm never going to be, you know, the person that knows the most about X. But at the same time, it is a little bit intimidating as someone taking on markets where you've got people like Richard Chu, who's a wizard in the healthcare technology space. It's like, gosh, like no matter how much I, how much I dive into that industry, I'm probably not going to know more than he does. <laughs> and so, so funny you mentioned that because, you know, I, I posted my unity thread yesterday Yeah, and I think I had spent it was maybe two days on Unity and I had been starting to understand and learn about the gaming industry more. And I was fortunate enough to get a lot of that exposure when doing my C limited research, yep. but still very nascent in my understanding of gaming and the different nuances of the industry. And so, you know, I very, I thought I was explicit in saying I have not identified a moat yet for this company. Someone tagged Matt ball in it and I got my head chewed off. <laughs> 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 which, which I'm fine with because, you know, what it allowed me to do is learn. It was a yeah. great learning opportunity for me, right? So I think with, you know, with that framework and with that in mind that you're not going to always know everything, what's exciting there is that, well, then you just have the opportunities to learn more. And it was, I think it was Steve Jobs that said, you know, I don't hire people that I'm smarter than. I, help, I hire people smarter than me because it makes you be smarter, right? And I think that's, that's one of the beauties about, Twitter for me, it's kind of how I think about my friend groups. It's, you know, I want to surround myself with people that are better than me, that are smarter than me, because not only does it push me to get better, but it allows me to learn more. And I think at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. So, you know, I, I don't know everything about cybersecurity. I don't know everything about gaming, but I know that I'm trying to learn. And I know yep. that, you know, I'm going to be very upfront and honest that it's still a process for me too, but I'm going to tell you everything that I know and what I truly believe with that knowledge. And I think that that alone, you know, allows people to have more trust in me with the transparency that I'm not a know-it-all and I'm not pretending to be. 
you know, I'm just going to provide you with the information that I found, the way that I think about these companies and what I think is a valuable opportunity for you moving forward if you invest in the company. Yeah. And you're writing to learn and then you're publishing that so that other people can learn alongside you, which is, exactly. which is, which is the entire benefit of publishing online. Like I'm starting to write about the AI and semiconductor space. And I know, I mean, people can't, yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. But like people, people can't see this, but you know, I know this much and right. you know, the people, the people that I'm talking to know, you know, it goes <laughs> off the screen. So but it brings us right into your deep dive into CrowdStrike, where you're sharing your knowledge of what you know. So talk to us about how you found the position and um, you know, what made you dive deeper and what are the main drivers for CrowdStrike? Sure. So I would say it started off and it's hard to think about it. Well, is it the story or the numbers first? You know, being somewhat familiar on, on Twitter and in the public markets, you know, the growth of CrowdStrike was, was evident, right? And so, you know, when I was doing my kind of screen for the high EPS and high sales growth names that we've talked about, right, that really fit that canceling model, CrowdStrike was one of those names. And when I then saw the list of companies that I could really choose from to dive into, what it then took was a lot of thinking. You know, I spent a lot of time just no screen, nothing, and just trying to think about, all right, well, what's going on in the world? And, you know, CrowdStrike, I didn't know at the time, but it was really popularized back in 2016 with the whole Russian hacks. You know, they were the ones that were really uh, tasked with figuring out what happened there. So that's why I started kind of diving into CrowdStrike. And then, you know, thinking about where's the world going and, and who are going to be the big players in, you know, this next paradigm or in, the, in where the world is going, you know, it's really all about digital transformation, right? It's that classic buzzword that's popped up. And, you know, with that will come more and more endpoints with smartphone proliferation around the world and everybody just being on their devices all the time. And what that will require is security because there are always going to be bad actors out there trying to get personal information to then sell mm -hmm. off or do whatever they want to do with it. Yeah. So cybersecurity made a lot of sense to me at the end of the day. And CrowdStrike, after all of my research on the industry, and I'm sure you follow Muji on Twitter, you know, reading through his deep dive into the cybersecurity industry, it was just readily apparent that CrowdStrike along with Zscaler were really the two names that you wanted to focus on. So that's why I focused on CrowdStrike. So, you know, the first thing I think to understand there, and I can just talk about the high level thesis if that's helpful. Yeah. And like I mentioned, you know, being able to take concepts and apply it across industries is really helpful. Once I dove into CrowdStrike and read all about the different products and their modules and what they're doing and their approach to cybersecurity, the network effects that they have was just blatantly clear. You know, so what they do and what's different than a lot of other security companies is they will take the data points and they, I think they have over a trillion data points every week from all every week that's insane every week <laughs> yeah that was a staggering number to me yeah and so what they do is they take it not just from one customer and then use that information to protect that customer they take the data points from all of their customers and they use all of that data to protect their other customers right and so if one let's say that you know that's zoom right zoom's a customer there's an attack on zoom and they stop that attack and they 
analyze the code, which is the signature or the behavior of that malware, right? Which I can get right. into also. Yeah. And they really identify that. What they can then do is protect all their customers based off of that one attack, right? Mm -hmm. And so what you can then see is that the more customers that join their platform, the more valuable the platform becomes, you know, very classic network effect. So that alone really got me excited about the company because once it starts getting into scale, and it's, you see the flywheel just start really taking off. So that was really the first thing that stuck out to me. And then second was understanding the industry itself and where it was moving. So Muji talks about this and he really laid it out really easily to understand is that the industry used to be, you know, a, a signature based um, uh, antivirus, right? If you think about your classic McAfee uh, product where you just download onto your computer, what it did is it basically said, okay, we know that these malwares have these codes, right? And so we're going to protect your device from these codes. Now that's great for anything that's happened in the past, but we all know that these bad actors are going to be way ahead of the curve all of the time. Oh, yeah. So it doesn't protect you from future attacks. Mm -hmm. What the industry moved towards is behavioral based, right? Where yeah. it understands what these types of attacks, how they behave, literally act, and they can stop attacks that way. So it's proactive versus reactive. And by CrowdStrike having a cloud-based, uh, cloud-native architecture, it was then allowed to really understand all the different behaviors that were going into these attacks and then using artificial intelligence could then think about and get ahead of what the next behavior could be. So that's why you know, those two things between the network effects and utilizing really futuristic technology with AI really had me fully sold in the name almost from the get-go and really trying to hold myself back <laughs> for getting too bullish before I did all of my research. Yeah. And it's, it's, you mentioned, you mentioned network effects and you mentioned AI. And one of the things that's come up in the research that I've done on AI and semiconductor demand is that it's not only is there a network effect built in with AI, but there's also that first mover advantage. Right. And because this is this is probably one of the most important things and gavin baker i think does the best out of anybody in Brilliant. in breaking down the importance of of ai and data and first mover because ai gets better the more data you put into it yep. so the more data you get the better the algorithm the better the algorithm the better the data it gets so on and so forth and so that's right. why companies like this that utilize ai network effects are so important and first mover so important. So even yeah. if a competitor comes in, which, you know, I'm sure that you've outlined in this, in this thesis, but even if a competitor comes in, they, they're probably not going to be able to get that scale of the data, a trillion events per week. And there's no way that they'll be able to catch up to that AI algorithm that's already gotten all of that data and is filtering better and better responses. Exactly. And, and Gavin's example, I think was Google, right? Google doesn't do anything in my opinion, to really truly stop other competitors from coming into the space. But because they've had so much data run through their algorithms, like Bing and Microsoft, there was no way they could compete because yeah. the AI of Google was just so much better than Microsoft was. And I don't know if I get too into it in the outline, but that's exactly why, you know, people are like, well, what's, what's the advantage? Cause I think that Microsoft does something similar with their security platform, but versus a semantic, which was acquired by Broadcom and really CrowdStrike is gaining all of their customers or, you know, Silence or any of these other competitors that are coming into the space, 
they just, they're not going to be able to compete. You're right at the end of the day. And so these different, you know, building blocks of a thesis for CrowdStrike really became more and more apparent to me. And then you layer on top of that, the industry tailwinds, and right. it's just really a no brainer. <laughs> yeah. So for anyone that doesn't follow CrowdStrike or know what they are, it's to simplify it. They are a security as a service company. So they're a cloud native a cybersecurity company, and really they focus on endpoint protection. So it's three things. They protect the devices, they prevent attacks on the devices, and then if there is an attack, they provide a response and analysis of those devices. So that's a very general and high level uh, perspective of what they do. And when you look at the cybersecurity industry itself and the growth that it's expected to go through, I think that endpoint protection is the second highest growth factor aside from uh, identity management identity and access management, that is, which is Okta, which is my second favorite name of the space, right? So, you know, all these things just really come together to really form a very coherent thesis, I think. You know, there's three critical factors for this thesis. You say it's the average contract value, subscription customers, and then gain in market share. Talk to us about how you think CrowdStrike's going to evolve on these three factors over the next three to five years. Sure. So we can talk about average contract value first, which would just be, you know, think about it. You sign up a customer and for a year term, you know, what is that typical dollar amount? Right. And so what people need to understand, and it's, they clearly lay it out in their press releases and in their reporting is I think about this, the number of customers that adopt a certain number of modules, right? Because they are a modular based pricing system. So the more modules that a customer buys, the higher their contract value. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but it was something like 30% plus of customers start off with five or more modules. And I think it was 56% maybe uh, start off with three plus. And those figures continue to grow. So you're going to keep seeing this average contract value increasing. And so the one response I got, the one negative response I got was from a PM on some zero. And he was like, you know, it's interesting that you're betting, you know, average contract value increasing for the next couple of years when, you know, it should come down. And it was a very blanket statement that had no basis behind it. And what, what this PM didn't understand is that, just because CrowdStrike had 10 modules at the time, or it was 11 modules at the time, that doesn't mean that's all they're going to do. They just released over the past, I think, week, uh, Falcon Horizon. You know, so it's the Falcon platform is CrowdStrike's product. And Horizon, I think, is now the 12th module that they have. So the more modules they roll out, and the more that these customers continue to buy more modules, the higher the average contract value is going to be. So right. I think, I wonder if I have my model available. I could even pull up, you know, what I modeled out for the yeah. average contract value over the life. Yeah, you know, it, it was around like $170,000, um, $173,000 for 2021, their fiscal year. And I have it just kind of maintaining a steady, you know, one to 2% increase, indicating that they're going to maintain this ability to keep selling these modules to their customers out of the gate. And then, you know, we can get into the other metrics there, but dollar-based net retention, right? If they're at 124%, which they've been really clicking along at 120%, that means that they're growing their revenue top line at 24% year over year without doing anything. They, they could get no more customers and they're going to grow their revenue at 24%, which is just like, what else could you want as an investor, right? You're getting free yeah. revenue. There's no more additional costs 
going into that. So, you know, I think that the average contract value by maintaining a somewhat steady to increasing ACV makes a lot of sense over the upcoming years, especially as they keep adding more modules. Uh, the next was subscription customers. So they are a very much a subscription based, uh, a subscription based pricing model, right? And so if you look at historically, the number of customers that they've been adding year over year, I mean, they've been clicking along at every quarter, like 700, 800, 900. And so as they keep getting more and more market share, and like we talked about, their algorithms keep improving more and more and customers keep abandoning Symantec and these older legacy players that just can't keep up. Yep. You know, there's no reason to think that they're going to fall off a cliff in terms of the number of customers, especially when you think about just the overall cloud landscape, you know, right now, I think it's only 20 to 25% of IT spend is, uh, is spent on the public cloud. That's mm -hmm. gonna go to 49% by 2025. So we're right. only talking about what's in place right now. What, what customers are doing with only 25% of their IT spend. Once that starts increasing to 50%, then you're getting more and more customers, a bigger pool of customers that are gonna be wanting to choose the best product that's in the market, which is CrowdStrike. So, you know, I, I don't really show any sort of meaningful decrease in subscription number of customers. I think they're gonna add about 3,400 this year. You know, they added in the, the first half of the year, they were at 1,800. So I think they'll okay. do another 1,600 of net additions of customers. And then from there, they'll do another 3,400 next year and slowly increase to about 3,500 over the next couple of years. So nothing aggressive on the subscription customer side, but I do want to show that they're going to keep getting these customers that are coming into the cloud market yeah. and anyone that's abandoning these older legacy players that can't keep up. Yeah. And now one of the things when I, when I hear, you know, net, net additions to businesses, especially in subscription businesses, the other thing I think of is what's what's the churn rate look like. So, this is this is coming from someone that doesn't necessarily know CrowdStrike's you know economics and stuff. Do you have any color or insight on the churn, and is that improving or has it just been stellar? And it's not really anything that you are worrying about over the next five years. Yeah, I think it's been cranking along at ninety eight or ninety nine percent. You're talking about uh, gross churn, right? So yes. it, you know, yeah. So if any customer um, uh, abandons the company, right? And so I think gross churn has been around 98 or 99%. So they aren't really losing anybody. And so if you think about it, right, what's another benefit or another part of their moat? And it's the fact that if a product is working really well, why would you abandon it? There, there's, there's no need to, right? And so I think that's why they've been able to hold on to so many of their customers. You know, if you think about Gartner, which you know, you, we can have a debate about how valuable these industry analyses are and these industry reports are, but Gartner is one where they name CrowdStrike as one of the leaders in their magic quadrant because they do all these tests and analyses. And CrowdStrike, unlike a lot of other competitors, a lot of competitors will identify attacks that aren't really attacks. And CrowdStrike has proven to actually have a lower percentage of that happen to them. So if you have a better product, there's a much better chance that your customers are not going to churn. And that's what we've seen with crowd. And so I think, yeah, it's like about 98, 99% gross retention. And then you have 124% dollar base net retention, which is just uh, really impressive for a uh, cloud company. Now, I think that a, a great 
uh, dollar-based net retention is going to be above 30%, 130% rather. But, you know, 124% is just nothing to scoff at. Yeah. Walk us through now your, you have, when you, when you do these breakdowns, you have these three advantages. They like to call them informational, behavioral, and analytical. What are, what are the reasons for those three advantages that you think you have with CrowdStrike? Sure. So I got this framework from Michael Mobison and I get a lot of frameworks from Michael Mobison. <laughs> That's never a bad thing. <laughs> never a bad thing. The guy's absolutely brilliant. Um, and including, you know, I spoke about the real options pricing model. That is all I was introduced to that by Michael Mobison. Well, did you, so, did, did you actually read the dark, uh, the dark side evaluation by Oswald? Okay. So grab that because when you brought up the options, he, he does a whole section on valuing company subsidiaries as options. And I think, I think you would, I mean, it's going into right what you're right what you're learning. So um, sorry to cut you off, but I think, I think you should buy that very quickly and, and just, and just dive into that. So go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, I'm currently going through like a 33 page report that he put together all on the real options pricing. And so that's kind of my first step here that I'm going to try to build out. But anyway, so the, the three kind of advantages that I think about uh, and out of the four, right, that Mobison introduces in his Sources of Alpha framework, it's, it's called the BAIT framework, right? You have behavioral, analytical, informational, and technical. So behavioral, analytical, informational is pretty straightforward. Technical is more like a market structure type of advantage. So the first advantage that I think that I do have is on the behavioral side. So inherently, humans are very averse to change. <laughs> so um, just looking at the forward revenue estimates, I see that CrowdStrike is cranking along every quarter, 85, 87, 89% top line revenue growth. And this is as they're continuing to scale customers, they're continuing to scale ACV with more modules, et cetera, which I anticipate continuing for the future, right? And so why would I think that a company with those fundamentals would go from growing top line at 80 plus percent down to what the street is estimating at 48%. And I think the reason why there's such a big discrepancy in my revenue estimate versus the street is that simply human nature is resistant to change. Mm -hmm. And they have a hard time grasping that there's this new disruptor in industry. So you know, there are, I think are, there are a variety of companies where the forward revenue estimates are very understated. I think two reasons why. One is this aversion to change. Two is that a lot of them didn't even provide guidance moving forward because COVID provided so much uncertainty. But I think that behavioral advantage was very clear to me that, you know, the street just wasn't understanding this, uh, this growth trajectory that the company was on. Uh, analytical you know, it's hard for me to say, listen, I have a lot of friends on the sell side and I think that some of them are very smart. Uh, from what I understand though, some kind of cut the edges and they don't do the true homework that they could be doing by talking to management, talking to industry experts, et cetera. So, you know, what I did was I tried to find some industry experts that I could speak to with my limited resource base, right? And I was able to find some and they really confirmed for me that the interplay that I was seeing between billings and the remaining purchase obligations was gonna be a continuing trend for the company where, so just, just so people understand, you know, billings is in the quarter, 
what did they send out to customers in terms of what they were charging them? And then a remaining performance obligation would be the existing balance on a balance sheet plus whatever wasn't, uh, I guess you could say charged as revenue in that period, right? Okay. And so to see the buildup of both moving forward was something very apparent to me and understanding that if they continue to get all of these customers with the average contract value that I was anticipating, both those figures will continue to just increase, right? Which is future revenue for the company. Right. So that was on the analytical side. And then on the uh, informational side, it's just really understanding the industry framework, right? And going back to the two sources as I was able to speak to, you know, they're very in tune with what other competitors are doing. And so if a sell-side analyst is not going in and doing this homework and really understanding competitor products and what the actual people who are using the products are saying about them, then you're going to miss the boat. You're going to miss the fact that Carbon Black, Tenable, Silence, you know, all of these even Sentinel One, which actually is a pretty good product and it's a private company currently, you know, they're just not able to keep up with CrowdStrike and the quality of the CrowdStrike product. So just by doing this homework, I was able to get some quality information that allowed me to, I think, have a pretty good advantage uh, in terms of being able to generate alpha from this name. And I mean, it's, it's proven right so far. Um, you know, I think it still has some time to play out, but, you know, those three things I think and it's a little bit subjective, but to me, gave me some sort of advantage I was comfortable with moving forward. Yeah. Now, is this still your largest position? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Good for you, yeah. man. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you. it's done pretty well. <laughs> so looking, looking at this name now, we've got, we've got the bull picture. What are the main risks where if you do a pre-mortem three to five years out, CrowdStrike's not the leader and you're completely wrong, where would you have been wrong? Yeah, that would be unfortunate, right? Um, <laughs> As your largest position. <laughs> I surely hope that's not the case. Um, so, you know, what I do, and I don't know if uh, everyone's been able to see uh, my detailed report on this, but it's really part of what I go through in terms of unwired reports is this pre-mortem concept. You know, what, what, what could I be wrong on, right? Yeah. And so the first thing I think about, and this is really applies to any of those, you know, quote unquote, high growth names that you mm -hmm. could uh, imagine is once COVID hit, multiples really started expanding. And part of the reason why is I think twofold, and there are probably more reasons. One, it could be just because the discount rate is now we're at the you know zero lower bound. And so if you if you do utilize a discounted cash flow model, which I, I don't do for my valuation, but I do put together a model to understand the levers and the drivers of the business. Yeah. If you do do that, then what you'll see is that <laughs> the discount rate has a massive impact on your really on your on your value because you're not going to be discounting at a very high value right so if the market multiples on that increase because of the discount rate or because of this concept of these companies pulling forward revenue for two or three years whatever it may be i think twilio mentioned three years microsoft said two years then you're just going to get a lot more value closer to the future. So your, your multiple is going to be higher. Yeah. So that's one thing I think about is, well, what is the appropriate multiple and how will it, what if it happens if it gets contracted significantly, right? So right now, I think that CrowdStrike's forward multiple is 34 times revenue. Um, a lot of what I was seeing before COVID was around 10 times revenue, 15 times revenue. It's so quite the jump. That's a big jump, right? So 
am I right on the multiple? Am I wrong on the multiple? I think that might have a lot to say in terms of the future success of the company. Uh, the next thing could be uh, if they were unable to prevent an attack on a, you know, on a client's or a customer's endpoints and yep. there was some big event, right? So headline risk is a big thing for these security companies. And I oh, think yeah. that once you lose that, that brand value of being a quality protector of uh, endpoints, that could be very detrimental, I think, to future growth. So that's something I think about too. It's, it's hard to anticipate you know, but I think that it's definitely some sort of tail risk event that could occur. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some competitors in the space like I mentioned, you know, Microsoft is one. The thing with Microsoft, and this applies to a lot of uh, different cloud computing type of industries, and you think about Microsoft, Amazon, Google is, you know, Microsoft could focus more on cybersecurity and potentially gain more market share and and it's, they do, from my understanding, have a very high quality product as well that uses the same type of network effects and a, uh, a threat graph, if you will, to really understand what's going on across their customer base. So that could happen as well. And you know that could eat into crowd's market share. Um, a big part of my thesis, right, was that they're gonna be able to continue to develop more and more modules. So if there are delays yeah. in that, that could mm-hmm. slow down growth substantially. Um, you think about these cloud names and a big part of their cost structure is sales and marketing, uh, which is what you invest in and be able to get more customers, especially early on. So, yeah. you know, these younger customers, these younger companies rather, they're going to burn cash, but really to gain market share, which is the optimal time to do so. So yeah. that, I mean, you saw Amazon do it for years, just burn through cash to build out infrastructure. So if they continue to invest in their sales and marketing team, but they somehow become ineffective or their channel partners decide to stop referring customers to CrowdStrike, that could be an issue. Um, Another thing that I've thought about potentially being a problem and I've done more research on, and I think that it's been negated somewhat in my own framework is the possibility of server space becoming more limited and pricing just increasing on them and eating into gross margins. Right. And I think we might talk about it more in depth later, but essentially there are two things coming into play here. One is that you have microchip technology becoming more and more advanced. So you're having more, it's becoming cheaper to have storage. That's yeah. one. Two is that when you look at their cloud hosting expenses, the percentage of their cost structure, and I can just think about, you know, R and D and their, uh, and their cogs, right? I think it was about like a hundred and some odd million dollars in Q2 and their total cloud hosting spend was $10 million. So it's 10% of just those two line items, but it was only about 4% or so of the total cost structure. So even if prices increased by 10%, let's say on their cloud hosting, you know, so it's, you know, let's say $11 million, you're still only at what, four and a half percent, maybe 5% of your total cost. So it's really not moving the needle. So I don't think that'll have as big of an impact on the ending on at the end of the day. Right. So I think that a lot of the risks that I foresee for crowd potentially, uh, one of them, I think the biggest one is really this multiple contraction. The others, I think they can handle. And, you know, we talked about from the competitive standpoint, the AI is a huge game changer for them and, and part of their moat. Um, the, uh, the potential attack on a customer that they're unable to prevent 
you know, it's hard to imagine and it's, it's something more of a left field type of thing, but you know, I don't think that there are really many true risk factors for this company aside from the multiple contraction in the short term. Yeah. And it's funny you mentioned Microsoft because when you, when you started talking about them, I had two thoughts in my head. The first thought was this innovators dilemma that they have, right? Where Microsoft's grown so much that pursuing something like this, whether let's say they could compete with CrowdStrike, it actually wouldn't matter on a material basis to Microsoft's core business. So there's kind of an issue with that. But then I also thought in my head, I said, well, because you mentioned this burn rate. And I thought, well, Microsoft might be big enough where they could enact the quote unquote Amazon strategy and just throw money at this thing, let it burn in order to get that market share from CrowdStrike. But then it goes back to, would they even want to do that? Because then you've got, you know, return on capital issues where they could probably invest in other areas of Microsoft's business. I mean, granted, I don't know that much about Microsoft. So this is just kind of what I'm thinking in my head. But um, you brought up, you brought up also this idea of, you know, using a DCF as a way to find the levers and something that I stole from, not stole, borrowed from, um, Samir at Escaladen Cape uh, Capital. I don't know if you read any of his letters. Yeah, of so, course. Yeah, so his his yeah he's 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 really smart. So one of the things that I took from him was on all his DCFs he puts a ten percent discount rate, and so I yes. think that's I think that's a great idea because in in these falling interest rate environments, if you have ten percent, you don't view that discount rate as something for you know to gauge what the markets discount rate is you gauge it as a hurdle for your portfolio and um i just i just think that's that's something that i wish i did earlier because if you do these shorter or these or these smaller discount rates you can get amazing valuations for the company but at the same time it's like okay if your discount rate seven percent that's if that's your hurdle for your portfolio that's you know you can get that by buying the s&p 500 so you know i just i just i just thought it was interesting yeah, no, it's really interesting you say that because I'm starting to think that that's the right approach as well. I listened to a talk by Terry Smith recently, and when he Genius. got to the discount rate part, he was literally like, "I use 10%. That's it. We're moving on." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it go it like I said, it kind of goes back to simplifying things, and it's like, yeah. like I mean, people, you know, nine point five, seven, six point, like just do ten percent. Just right. do ten percent. See what it spits out. At the end of the day, if you get a valuation wrong, it is not your discount rate. It is your cash flow forecast, right? Yeah. And so, and so that's why, really, that's really why the DCFs for these growth companies don't make any sense because it is way too difficult to really try to understand what their growth rate is going to be like moving forward. Yeah, how much longer they'll continue to burn cash. So, if you're going to focus on anything, it should be the cash flows, not the discount rate. Yeah, and it was funny when you when you emailed me the outline and we were talking about, you know, 2025 sales or something like that. You said, uh, you said also, I have no clue what the hell my bank account will look like in a few months from now, let alone what a massive company will look like in five years. It's it's like, I want to get that on a mug and (laughs) just like quote your Twitter handle. Cause that's, it's, it's so true. It's so true. It's so true. Um, I want to now kind of shift to the last bit of the podcast this has actually flown by so we started about 15 minutes before we should have started and it feels like it's flown by Um, holy 
Yeah, it's wow. already seven fifteen. I've got a dinner date with my girlfriend. <laughs> she's oh, you're booked for the night, man. <laughs> she's been she's she's been texting me. It's like actually, sorry, I'd rather talk investing with Chris. But thank you. <laughs> no, I couldn't. I couldn't do that. But um, but talk to us now about your newsletter because it's something that is a tremendous value add to the investing community. And really, I want this to be your space to plug everything that you want the newsletter to be. I know your goal is to be a PM. So kind of, yeah. you know, walk us through why you started the newsletter and, and what your goals are for that. Yeah. So I appreciate that. And I, I just want to say it's been an absolute whirlwind of an experience between Twitter and my Substack newsletter. So yeah. for everyone, just a little bit more granular detail on myself, you know, I left a private equity space in April of 2020. So just, you know, six months ago, and, you know, my entire life, like I said, since, since college was to work in the public markets. And I went into private equity first to develop this fundamental skill set, which, uh, you know, I was able to go to a shop where I, I had a relationship with the partner and I knew their process. I knew that that was a place that I could really learn how to value a business, right? And understand a business. So once I left in April, 2020, I spent the next couple of months just try, reading a lot. I read I think I read like 10 books in the span of like 12 weeks. You know, I was really cranking through a lot of reading material and there was something missing. Right. And I was learning a lot, I think, but I wasn't able to really conceptualize and grasp it and apply it. And the reason why, because I wasn't doing it, right. You know, it's, it's easy to read a lot. And, but for me, when I learn it's through doing and making mistakes and, and learning from those mistakes. So at the very start of Q3 is when I really started to get more involved in Twitter and to actually do my own fundamental research of companies and start publishing them. So it really started with me doing these threads on Twitter. You know, very simple 10, 12 tweets, just the high level, what is this company? What do they do? Why do they make money? What's the industry? And what is my takeaway, right? And then I was building out these really in-depth research reports on my own without telling anybody. And, you know, one of the people, one of the guys I was networking with, you know, he told me like, listen, you know, if you have these pitches really prepared for your interviews, when you try to get a job at a hedge fund, then you're going to have a leg up on the competition. Right. So that then provoked me to start just creating much more synthesized versions of my detailed reports, mm -hmm. which I, when I was talking, I forget who I was talking to, but they were like, you should just turn this into a newsletter. You know, everyone's doing Substack these days. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> and like, I've never been like, I'm not great at social media. Like, yeah. On Instagram, I don't ever post things. I'm, you know, I have my friends on there that I'm chatting with, but and Facebook, I go on to check birthdays and that's it. So <laughs> when it came to Twitter, I was more of a guy that just followed a lot of smart people and that was it. And you know, Substack, I'd never heard of Substack, I had no clue what it was. Right. So I basically the first thing that I did, the first time I did a newsletter was for CrowdStrike. And I took the pitch that I did for CrowdStrike and I just transposed it into Substack, and that was it. Yep. And I started off with 176 uh, subscribers just by posting on Twitter and people signed up and they got right. my first one. And so from 176 has now grown over, I think it was like eight or so newsletters. Drum roll, please. <laughs> to to 3,300. Damn. Which, yeah. 3,300. That's like oh. Zoom level growth right there. <laughs> The keg, I calculated the keger, it made me happy, right? <laughs> <laughs> you would calculate the keger. I, yeah. <laughs> I can't help myself. And you know, it's it's the same thing with Twitter, right? I started off with like 200 followers or so, and now yeah, I'm at this, this keger is, yeah, this keger is even more nutty. 
<laughs> it's been it's been a whirlwind and you know the best part about it because i think that the you know money is great work is great you know but i think the whole meaning of life is developing meaningful relationships with people and the people yeah. that i've met on twitter is just i'm very fortunate because i would never have been able to anywhere else right so oh yeah purpose of my newsletter and i, I kind of state this you know in the about me whatever it is you know i want to teach people not what to think about investing. I don't want to tell you what to think about a stock, but I want to teach you how to think about investment and how to think about a company. So it is a typical, you know, teach a man to fish type of thing so that you can take my frameworks and how I think about an analysis and apply it to any company you think is interesting, right? So that's on the, and I try to be very objective and very transparent, right? I, I don't want to sway you in terms of, I think this is the greatest company ever. Invest now or you're going to lose all your money. You know, none of those, you know, type Motley of, Fool type stuff. Yeah, you know, and uh, listen, I think a lot of those guys are, I, I love Brian's work. I think Brian's a really smart guy. And I think that, you know, they have some smart people working for them. But for me, I just want it to be, you know, this is the state of play. This is what I think their competitive advantage is. Do with it what you will. And this yeah. is how you can do it with any company you want, right? Yeah. So I think objectivity, transparency is really important. That's why, you know, I'll tell people when I think I make a mistake because I think it's yeah. important. So personally for me, it's, I did a lot of writing when I was in private equity. Most of it, unfortunately, was when we had covenant triggers and we had to tell the bank why we were going to recover. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it taught me how to tell a story. And the that's important, yeah. That's word important. being so important to what you're writing, right? You shouldn't have any wasted words. And so the newsletter is a way for me to communicate my ideas and try to synthesize my thoughts and my thesis into very, you know, digestible formats. So that's it's more of helping me develop the skill set to uh, construct my ideas and make sure I fully understand my own investment thesis. And then hopefully, you know, it'll get me some exposure to either PMs or CIOs or other analysts and they can see my work product and say, Hey, this guy's pretty smart, you know, let's hire him. And I've fortunately enough, I've had a few people like that reach out to me and I'm able to do some contracting work with them. Oh, doing well, no surprise. Out. Yeah. I mean, that is, I mean, it's, yeah. I, I, I forget who tweeted it, but it was basically, basically the tweet was, if you could like buy calls or invest in somebody's future, who would it be? And it's, you know, it's one of those, it's like, dude, I'm taking call options on your ability to become a PM a hundred percent. Oh, I appreciate that, man. Uh, it's, it's way too nice. But you know, what's interesting is, you know, Richard Chu, he got, I, I wouldn't say he got his job because of it, but his, I think it was his Lavongo write up. Yeah. Uh, on Seeking Alpha. Yeah, exactly. That's what got him the connection. At Saga Partners. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And so I'm no. hoping that maybe the same thing had happened for me. And I've had some interesting conversations, but you know, it's tough, obviously, you know, everyone knows, you know, getting a job, especially in this environment and in the hedge yeah. fund industry is it's difficult, but it's just, you know, I'm, I'm the type of person where I don't know how to give up. I'm going to bash my head against a wall and I will keep yeah. scrapping and fighting until I get there. And so since I know what I want, it's just work your butt off until you get there. And that that's kind of where I'm at with the newsletter. Have you thought about taking the newsletter paid? Yeah. So it's interesting, you know, a VC firm reached out to me and, you know, their thesis was, you know, Substacks could be the replacement for sell side analyst reports. And yeah. I forget who came across my Substack, uh, which person at the firm was, and I'll leave them, you know, um, nameless for now, but I have thought about it. I haven't done it yet because what I struggle with is this, right. And I've, 
I put my detailed reports behind a paywall and it really took away and really for the only re reason that I was killing myself, not sleeping, trying to get these things done on time. And so I, I thought it was worth maybe the, the money, especially with the quality and quantity of information. I mean, it's like 50, and, 60 pages. You sent me the snowflake one and I'm like, yeah. my gosh, dude. <laughs> yeah. Snowflake, that one took me a while. That was a, yeah, that was a 40 or 50 pager. It took me a while to read. So I can't imagine how long it took you to write. <laughs> a long time. So, you know, I did that for a reason. And, you know, I think maybe I outpriced a lot of people, but I got, you know, some sales from it, but it really defeats the purpose. Right. Yeah. Like I said, my goal is to educate people and to teach people how to think. So I don't, I want to try to figure out a way to monetize the newsletter if possible, while also not just detracting from that core mission, which is to help people and help them become educated in terms of financial acumen and investing. So I do want to, and actually I, you know, I had a close friend of mine. Um, he reached out to me last night, literally, uh, because someone, um, one of the girls that follows me on Twitter, she was like, you should do a YouTube you know, channel. Like you should do all this stuff. And Dude, she wants to see more of your pretty face, man. Come on. Yeah, know that. Course, right. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I hadn't thought about this and he texted me last night and he goes, you should build out a full social media platform of all of the work that you do, because not only is it of such high quality, but you're able to present these ideas in a way that people can understand, which not a lot of people can do. So, yeah. you know, something I've thought about, it's something that would be a great idea. I want to make sure that it makes sense, especially in light of my career goals and what I hopefully have coming up for me. But yeah. it is something I thought about. I just want to do it the right way. I want to do it so that people still get the benefit of my work. So at the end of the day, that's what really matters. I think. Yeah. I mean, dude, you're meeting women, getting retweets from Peru, sex and up getting talked to by VC firms. I mean, I think you're doing pretty well on Twitter. <laughs> I, think, I, think doing, I, think, I think you're doing pretty well on Twitter. I will say you should reach out and I'll, I'll give a warm intro for you. Um, you probably follow mostly borrowed ideas. Oh yeah. So he made his Substack, or it's, it's, in, it's in a free period now. It's going to go paid. His is 10 bucks a month. And I'm just thinking off the top of my head, if you, if you want to make that Substack and keep your Substack about the process and education learning $10 a month is that price point that anybody could really afford. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's something that I can, I can, I can shoot you his information. You guys can talk about it. Cause I know he's, he's in the process of doing that same thing. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, this, this has been so fun. I think, I think we could have another literally two and a half hours that we could probably talk if we wanted to. Um, but I am going to, I'm going to get to the couple closing questions. So the first one is, um, you know, you mentioned it earlier, Twitter, but where can, where can people go to find out more about you if they want to contact you, whether it's an email, um, stuff like that. Sure. So yeah, definitely follow me on Twitter. I'm trying not to be as addicted as I have been, you know, over the past couple months. It, Every it really tweet I see that I'm like, oh, this is a good one. I scroll down. I'm like, oh, of course, Chris has tweeted about it. He's replied. He's the top replier <laughs> on, on the Twitter thread. If you ain't first, you're last. <laughs> 100%. So, you can find me on Twitter. It's Seifel Capital, S-E-I-F-E-L Capital. Uh, my Substack is siflecapital.substack.com. You know, you can go on there and subscribe if you want. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn uh, as well. Feel free to, you know, follow me on there, connect with me on there. Uh, and then, you know, I'm really active on Twitter. So, and I always respond to people that DM me, you know, I don't care if you have one follower or 30,000, you know, I try to respond to everybody because, you know, I think it's important to pay it forward, right? You know, yeah. especially for me in my position, the people that, 
are that help me out and will take the time people that are CEOs of big companies and you know they're running asset management firms to take time out of their day to help me out is it's really humbling for me so I kind of do the same thing for anybody because I know that I'll be in that seat one day and when the people reach out to me like the younger guys that reach out to me that are still trying to learn and come up this learning curve themselves I remember being in that seat so I always want to you know make sure that I'm paying it forward for them and doing the right thing and there are some just not friendly people out there. <laughs> we'll put it that way. Uh, but you know, I, I really want people. I like teaching people. I like helping people out. It, it really make it makes me happy, right? I get a lot out of it too. So yeah, you know, DM me on Twitter. I'll respond. Have you gotten roasted on Twitter? And if you have, what's the best roast that you've been a victim of? Oh man. Well, the you know, yesterday with Matt Ball, who has you know, 35, 40,000, whatever followers. And he's like, I'm not even going to read this because he says there are no, there's no competitive <laughs> advantage. That one was tough. Um, yeah. But, you know, there are a lot of trolls out there for sure. I mean, I'd, I'd have to think about that one. You know, for the most part, you know, people are pretty good about it. And I'm able to sense when someone's being sarcastic and I'll just give them some, you know, snide back. But you know what, I, you know, it's the typical day and age and probably why I'm so bullish on gaming. People are so comfortable behind their screens that oh, they'll yeah. say whatever they want, especially oh, yeah. with the anonymity of a lot of accounts. <laughs> so, you know, it hasn't been too bad on Twitter. I, th I think the recent Matt Ball experience was pretty tough for me, though. <laughs> when you when you start that YouTube channel, um, definitely do like the celebrity mean tweet version. And oh, once yeah. a month, if you just get roasted, just that would be tremendous content. <laughs> oh, I, I love it. I love it. There's so many opportunities. I'd have to go back and find some. Yeah, no, but it's, it's, it's before, before I ask you this, this last question, it's important to rehash what you said about paying it forward because, um, you know, this podcast is just the epitome of, of paying it forward and me reaching out to people that are way smarter than me that have, you know, literally carved out two hours of their day, you know, guys like Cliff Sosin that run hundreds of millions of dollars carved out two hours in his day to talk to me that he's never met about investing. Um, you know, and just, and just, and just all these investors. And even, even going back to, um, I don't know if you heard Matt Sweeney on, um, the acquirers podcast with, with Toby. Okay. So check out that. But Matt's, Matt's one of the guys, he was the first hedge fund manager that I ever cold emailed. And he responded and he said, love to talk. I would love to call. Um, you know, I did this when I was starting out. And no he said what you say. He's like, look, if I, I want to give, you know, the chance to pay it forward. And it's, you know, because of that, it fosters this, this learning and this, and this desire to learn. So, you know, it was a long-winded way of me saying, pay it forward, people. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like, you reaching out to somebody on Twitter that's got 15 followers that might encourage him or her to keep learning and they might become the next greatest investor of all time. Right. Right. No, you never know. And I, you know, I, it's interesting to me because I do think that I listen to a lot of these stories, you know, and a lot of the time these really successful guys, it actually was that story for them where it was yep. someone that just gave them a shot, yep. right? Someone, someone saw something in them or was just doing a nice thing and gave them a chance and they just capitalize on that opportunity. And, you know, I know that for me, that's exactly what I'm going to do when someone does give me a shot, but yeah. that's what I try to do for everyone else, because you really never know, you know, who could then do something maybe for you down the road or yeah. what that relationship could develop into. Right. And yeah. so I think that Twitter is just a great medium for that. And, and, you know, one thing I'd say to people is screw what other people think. 
you know, go put your work out there. Go, because the worst thing that can happen is that you learned. Literally yeah. the worst <laughs> thing that can happen. Yeah. And so like, that's, you know, for me, it's, it's hard, right? Because we all have egos and we don't like getting embarrassed, but screw that, you know, yeah. just go for it. Like nobody, like for me, I don't think anybody in life really did anything truly great by staying comfortable. So I'm constantly trying to step outside of my own comfort zone and expand my skill sets, expand my own mental models. And I, I really encourage everyone else to do that because that then allows real true personal growth. Yeah. Well, it goes back to my all-time favorite human, Theodore Roosevelt, man in the arena quote, where it's just, you know, people can boo and jab and troll from the sidelines. But the fact of the matter is you're in there learning, you're on the field, you're actually blood, sweat, and tears trying to learn, trying to get better. So, um, you know, it doesn't, it, do, it, it doesn't matter what people in the stands think, right? It's just a matter of if you're getting after it down on the field. Exactly. Exactly. And I need to be a player helmet. And all. <laughs> awesome. All right. So last question that I ask everybody, um, if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present doesn't have to be finance related, who would it be and why? Uh, so interesting. I just mentioned helmet, right? Because so full disclosure for everybody, I am a Tom Brady fanboy. I don't think there's anybody that's ever. Well, you're a Boston guy, so that makes sense. I am. I am. <laughs> but my level of adoration for that man is just unprecedented, I think. <laughs> but, you know, leaving aside the obvious choice, you know, I've, ta I've talked a lot about thinking and mental models. And so in thinking about this question, right, I think I'd want to have, you know, dinner with one of the best thinkers ever. So, whether it be, you know, a Socrates or, you know, a Confucius, you know, we're going to throw it way back in the day, right? Way back. Kind of understand exactly how, how they think, right? And how they're able to view the world and develop these frameworks that exist to this day, right? Five, like 1500 years old, right? We're still quoting Confucius. Uh, I think being able to do that would really allow me to, it would give me the most value of anyone that I could talk to. So, and wouldn't that be cool, you know, someone that uh, in a completely different time period to try to, you know, mirror different cultures and, and personalities, yeah. how cool that would be. So, you know, I think that, yeah, Socrates or Confucius, probably one of those guys would be a lot of fun. It's just amazing when you think of guys like that, because um, I love, I love history and autobiographies, biographies and stuff like that. Yeah. But this idea, and um, I think I first heard it from Jordan Peterson, but this idea that we discount, you know, us humans today in 2020, we discount the knowledge of those like well before us, like even, even, even in Confucius's time, stuff like that, because we now know we, or we think we know so much more right. than they do. But the fact that we're still quoting these people and the fact that their, their uh, allegories and their, you know, mental models for the world we still use today is just an incredible testament to how genius those guys were. Exactly. If, if they weren't as smart as they were, it would have gotten lost in time, right? You know, yeah. you, you think about uh, what, what does uh, Achilles say or, you know, Brad Pitt and Troy, right? <laughs> it's, it's, you know, you, you don't get remembered if you don't make a true impact on the world. Yeah. And that's what they've done. You know, the fact that we still talk about them, you're right. You know, that's, that's unprecedented. You know, I, I don't, maybe I'll have that impact. Who knows? Right. You know, but but to be able to at least impact one person's life that way, like you can do that. And that goes a long way for somebody else too. Right. So maybe it's not the entire world that will remember you, but maybe one yeah. person takes what, you know, the interaction they had with you and they use that to then have a very positive life and influence more people that way. So you can have almost this snowball effect 
of positivity throughout the world just by doing the right thing by people and by giving people a shot. Beautiful way to end. Thanks so much for coming on the show, man. I, uh, I know, I know we're going to have this discussion again and, uh, can't wait to, um, send this out to everybody. I know, I know this is, this is, this is just going to be so much value to people and I learned so much. So thanks again, Chris. It was a blast. Oh, my pleasure. It's a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Let's do it again soon.